listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 206. Schools are reopening across the U.S. and the world, and COVID numbers are spiking. Must be a coincidence, right? Nah. Today, we'll talk to some educators who are fighting for safe schools, something they've been doing for a long time, but which has new meaning in the age of pandemic. But first, the news. As wildfires sweep across much of the West Coast and wipe out whole communities, you've probably heard many stories in the news about terrified rural residents fleeing from their burning homes. But homeowners are just one part of the population that relies on the region affected by the fires. Farm workers, of course, have once again been overlooked as the collateral damage of the wildfires. Since the hellish haze and smoke has blanketed the agricultural breadbasket of the Central Valley, many workers in the fields have gotten caught up in the toxic plumes with little to no health protections, and they're working jobs that are dangerous even when there aren't wildfires encroaching around their fields. A recent survey of farm workers found that the majority had not been given N95 respirators, the special face masks that can protect from the smoky air that is now smothering much of California, Oregon, and Washington. Even in normal times, farm workers have to brave monstrous heat, extreme risk of injury, and often brutal exploitation and abuse by their employers. Roughly half the farm labor force nationwide is undocumented, which is an additional barrier when they need to seek medical or emergency housing assistance in the wake of the wildfire, plus the pandemic. Farm worker advocates fear that undocumented workers may feel pressured to keep working despite the health risks and will be reluctant to speak out about unsafe conditions when they know it could cost them their jobs. Interestingly, California is ahead of most states in providing protections to the undocumented. State lawmakers actually provided relief funds for undocumented residents who had been excluded from the Federal CARES Act aid payments. However, to date, very few farm workers have been able to access that relief, according to Hernan Hernandez of the California Farm Worker Foundation. He told NPR, quote, the aid for the Central Valley was capped at 10,000 undocumented workers. So this didn't encompass just farm workers. It encompassed any type of undocumented worker that works in retail, that works in restaurants, that works in construction. So a very minute force actually had an opportunity to receive those $500, unquote. It shouldn't surprise anyone that farm workers are once again excluded from Keystone public health and welfare protections. But the fact that they are also among those at highest risk of being impacted by COVID-19 and the wildfires underscores why the relief measures aimed at addressing the damage wrought by this pandemic and by natural disaster are more likely to replicate rather than remedy the fundamental inequities facing our so-called essential workers. Workers at London's Tate Galleries have been on strike for a month now against layoffs that the workers argue would disproportionately hit the least powerful employees of the world-famous art institution. As art workers around the U.S. have stepped up organizing in the face of the pandemic, we wanted to talk to some art workers from outside the country who are facing, unsurprisingly, some of the same issues. I spoke to one of the retail workers at Tate, who is also a union representative for PCS Tate. I'm a union rep um, for Tate United, which is a branch of uh, PCS Union, Public and Commercial Services Union, representing um, workers across the, the four Tate galleries across the UK. Um, myself, I'm also a retail assistant um, working in the bookshops uh, at Tate Modern, mm-hmm. Tate Britain, um, in London. And uh, we are on strike. Um, we being the, the retail staff at both of those museums 
Um, we're on strike uh, to oppose the museum cutting uh, the jobs of 313 of the lowest paid workers, um, the most precarious workers from the most diverse teams in Tate, um, retail, catering, and publishing. Um, and uh, we think this cut is too deep, um, especially considering Tate's getting uh, seven million pounds from the UK government's uh, arts and culture bailout. Mm-hmm. Um, they could use just ten percent of that money to save the majority of our jobs, but um, they're not putting any of it toward that. So that's why we're on the fifth week of our, our legal strike action. So the museums are reopened now, right? Yes. Yeah. And so how has that gone with the strike? What's been going on? Um, and have you gotten a lot of support from the arts community? So, um, yeah, the museums reopened at the end of July. Um, basically, as I mentioned, we're retail workers on strike. Um, there's over a hundred of us, uh, um, currently participating in the strike action, and um, uh, this, in effect, has, um, you know, taken a large part of the workforce out of the, uh, the two museums, mm-hmm. uh, Tate Modern and Tate Britain. Um, you know, our, our colleagues um, in the other departments aren't, aren't able to strike legally. We were the only workers that were um, balloted mm-hmm. for the strike action, but um, we maintain a presence um at the museums every single day, um, either through um, our daily um, picket lines at the staff entrances of both Tate Modern and Tate Britain, or through um, protest events that we invite the public to as well. And these include um, kind of participatory performance art or installations. We've had guest speakers like um, Jeremy Corbyn, Owen Jones, Ash Sarkar, artists like Mark Leckie, um, Zarina Muhammad from The White Cube, um, writers, and uh, yeah, a bunch of different um, people coming out to show their support. We also have um, artists uh, sending us, you know, um, letters of solidarity that we publish on our on our Tate United um, Instagram and Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, um, just reported on in the guardian that there was an open letter um that 316 artists signed in support of the striking team workers um and uh this includes you know a number of artists that are um, within the Tate collection um turner prize winners and um you know artists who have exhibited um in the gallery a number of times so the workers that are facing redundancies, right, are some of the lowest paid workers across the the museum and also disproportionately more likely to be um, black minority ethnic, right? Like this is this is the most diverse and lowest paid and nobody should be surprised who's listening to this podcast to hear that workforce. And yet they're the ones taking the cuts while the people who make a lot more money than that are not. Uh, That's correct. Tate have cited various uh, measures that they're putting in place to make sure that this doesn't um, disproportionately affect um, uh, the diversity of the workforce, Mm -hmm. um, and and we're interested. Um, 
just anecdotally, you know, uh, a lot of our colleagues, I mean, we're all in different um, situations. Uh, some people have families, um, you know, some people have caring requirements and, um, you know, we have, we, we have lots of, of different types of um, diverse colleagues. Uh, and so this is um, a situation that we didn't want. Uh, like you said, um, just the, the lowest paid um, and most precarious workers uh, paying the price for for this whole thing. Um, one of our, our three core demands is that there should be no redundancies while anyone at Tate is paid over 100,000 pounds per year. For an institution that showcases um, creativity as it's, you know, sort of um, a definitional uh, reason, mm -hmm. reason being, um, the solutions that they're using are entirely uncreative. And we will put more information on the strike at the Tate Galleries at our website, dissentmagazine.org. Under the Trump administration, the Department of Labor has been slowly trying to limit the scope of federal labor protections. They have, for instance, undermined several of the key reforms undertaken by the Obama administration on overtime rules, on the rights of tipped wage workers, etc. But a recent federal court ruling thwarted one of the agency's main attempts to severely limit the coverage of the Fair Labor Standards Act. The judge blocked a rule that the Department of Labor had created on the so-called joint employer standard. That's the rule that determines when a company can be deemed a joint employer of workers who work for a subcontractor of that company. So this standard might apply to workers who, for example, are employed through a franchise operator of a big fast food brand or who work for a cleaning service or a temp agency that contracts with a larger corporation to provide additional services alongside its regular workforce. Basically, the Department of Labor wanted to tighten the criteria for joint employer status so that it would be nearly impossible for many low-wage subcontracted workers to seek accountability from the companies that benefit from their labor indirectly. Vertical joint employment involves a company subcontracting some of its work through a separate firm, and horizontal joint employment is when two companies are served by a single worker. A federal judge in New York struck down the vertical joint employer rule, which was the one that labor advocates really took issue with. So for now, this attempt to roll back the rights of contract and franchise workers has effectively been blocked, and employees can still try to protect their rights under the Fair Labor Standards Act in order to hold accountable the company that might not be the one writing their paycheck, but which nonetheless controls their working conditions. I talked to Heidi Sherrills of the Economic Policy Institute about what the ruling means for low-wage workers who work for more than one company. I would say that why joint employment is important is because of another sort of wonky concept, workplace fissuring, which is also known as domestic outsourcing. And I think that's best understood through an example. And you can think of this. It used to be the case that essentially everyone working in a hotel, when you walked into hotel, to a hotel, was working for the company whose name was on the front of the building. But in about the 80s, the 1980s, employers began contracting out for services, like and they particularly began contracting out for labor intensive services. So instead of having housekeepers and janitors and laundry workers and landscapers and human resources workers being employed by the hotel, the hotel would contract out for those services. And then if the hotel in that situation is not technically an employer of those contracted workers, then they can put pressure on their contractors to cut corners on labor costs through violating labor and employment laws 
but they'll face no liability of their own for those violations because they're not actually those workers' employers. And so that's that's it in a nutshell why we need strong joint employer standards. Because if that lead firm in this example, the hotel, if they are also an employer, then they have an incentive to make sure that those workers are paid the minimum wage, they're paid overtime if they're entitled to it, they have a safe workplace, a healthy workplace, and on and on. And what happened with the court ruling that just came down um, and how does it affect how the Department of Labor will operate and will um, deal with these cases? So the ruling that just came down was good news for workers that came on the heels of bad news for workers. What has happened with DOL is that in January, they, the, the Trump administration, the Trump Department of Labor published a rule that weakened joint employer standards. And one of the things we did when that rule was still in its preliminary stage, still in its proposal stage, is we submitted public comments with a really rigorous estimate showing that if that rule were finalized, it would cost workers on the order of $1 billion a year, just through increased wage theft, increased workplace fissuring, straightforward dynamics that you would expect if the joint employer standard was weakened. DOL ignored those comments, um, finalized that rule to the detriment of workers, but then 18 state attorneys general sued DOL because of the rule, and a judge last week struck down most of that rule. And one of the things that they noted was DOL just couldn't ignore um, the fact that this rule would have a big cost for workers. So... Ultimately, um, does the ruling simply set back this rulemaking process? Um, I mean, could the DOL come back and, you know, maybe in a few months, depending on the outcome of the election, knock on wood. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, DOL could presumably uh, come up with a rule that manages to meet the parameters um, put forward in the ruling and could still promulgate a pretty nasty joint employer standard, right? At the, their time, at least in Trump's first administration, um, is running short. Like it'd be, it'd be unlikely that they could promulgate a whole new rule in that time. But what they will almost surely do is appeal the judge's ruling. So I think that in at least the short run, this rule will still have um, many iterations in the courts before we find out what ultimately happens. Right. Another place where the joint employer standard has been uh, contested is, of course, the National Labor Relations Board. Is the administration simply like looking to have like a consistent kind of joint employer standard across the board? Um, and, you know, does the joint employer standard um, that the National Labor Relations Board uh, solidified, which kind of reflects um, this more regressive standard that Trump is going for, does that affect the Department of Labor? It doesn't. Interestingly enough, there are two separate rules. The one, the joint employer standard from the Department of Labor applies to the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the um, act that has to do with, it sets a minimum wage, overtime protections, wage and hour type of protections. And that's the one that just got overturned. There was also a Trump administration rule that, that weakened joint employer standards under the National Labor Relations Act, 
And that's the rule that came out of the National Labor Relations Board. And that one is still standing. And so what that rule does is it makes it much harder for workers to bring all their employers to the bargaining table. If I am a contracted worker, say, and I work for a contract firm, but the but some lead firm controls thing like things like whether I have health insurance or what my hours are or what pay I get. My the, the firm that's technically my employer, if the lead firm is not also my employer, the firm who's my sort of primary first employer can can legitimately say, oh, we can't bargain over those things. We have no control over them. That one will also cost workers, you know, more than a billion dollars a year. And it also needs to be struck down. Yeah. Um, so in essence, if we have conflicting joint employer standards, does that mean, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, franchise workers at a franchise and a McDonald's franchise could be able to hold McDonald's accountable for say, paying the minimum wage under the Fair Labor Standards Act and yet not be able to collectively bargain with them as an employer. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The, That's weird. <laughs> yep. We really do have a strange set of things going on now. You know, we I hope we get a good jobs president in here who will actually work on making those things coherent and setting them up so that we can have an economy that that works for workers and not just for you know corporate executives and shareholders. That was Heidi Sherrills, Senior Economist and Director of Policy at the Economic Policy Institute. When we last spoke to the folks at the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union, NPEU, it was July and the Scholars Strategy Network was pushing back on its employees union drive. But I get so many notifications from NPEU that they've organized another nonprofit that I can't even keep up. So I thought it was time to check in on their pretty impressive organizing wave and to hear the latest on SSN from Kayla Blado and Katie Barrows. This is Kayla Blado, the president of NPEU. Scholar Strategy Network, their management uh, refused to recognize their union and also had hired Ogletree Deacons, a notorious union-busting law firm to represent them. Um, But Scholar Strategy Network staff um, had their NLRB election last week, and they um, had 100% support for the union. So they overwhelmingly voted for the union and were able to be granted their union. So we're really excited. We hope that management bargains in good faith. We're also urging them to drop their contract with Ogletree Deacons and engage directly with their their new staff union. Excellent. And so that is only one of many, many, many pieces of news that y'all have had over the last several months. And I was saying before we turn the recorder on, I feel like I get an update every few days that there's a new union or new bargaining unit has joined NPEU. So Give us like a quick rundown on who the most recent um, places to unionize are. Yeah, so this is, um, I'm Katie Barrows. I'm the uh, vice president of communications for MPU. And in the last eight days, so since September 8th, uh, we've welcomed four new units um, that have asked for voluntary recognition. Uh, Feminist Majority, New American Leaders, 
Innovation Law Lab, um, and today the Hub Project. Um, and in addition to SSN winning their NLRB election, um, the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center uh, was recognized through card check uh, in the last week or so. We talked a little bit about this before, but like this is obviously a really complicated, messy time for about 12 different reasons. Um, but talk about some of the things that you're hearing from these different organizations and the, the members about why they, they want a union and why now. Workers are organizing now. I, I think it's um, for a few reasons, but I think, you know, overwhelmingly it's it's an extension of of their pre-pandemic organizing. Um, I think workers at nonprofits continue to want the same things that they have um, during the pandemic and before the pandemic, which is more democracy at their workplace, more transparency in decision-making and more equity along the lines of race and gender and other things. Um, But I think, you know, during the pandemic, it's kind of presented a challenge for workers um, there's so much uncertainty around what the future of our organizations is going to be like. Um, even now, you know, working from home, a lot of people who have children or other family caretaking responsibilities have a lot of difficulties. And so, um, you know, having a union is one way to create some stability um, and also have a voice in the decision making of the future of the organization. So I think a lot of workers are, um, you know, maybe having a union is something that they've wanted for a few months, but I think the pandemic has maybe spurred some urgency in um, getting those legal protections now that they've been lacking. Yeah. Do you think the political situation is also um, playing a part in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think think we've seen our democracy being eroded and chipped away. Uh, We've seen, well, you know, we've seen that um, workers' rights being eroded and chipped away by the Trump administration. Um, And so having a union at your workplace is one way to practice democracy and kind of reclaim some of the power that workers have lost over the last decades, but also more urgently in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also thinking of, of, um, the unionization among campaign workers who are often a related group of people to the people who are working in, in some of these nonprofits, sometimes even some of the same people. Um, yeah, I think the other thing is uh, we work with progressive or left-leaning nonprofits for the most part. And a lot of the campaign organizing has happened with more progressive candidates and, and uh, d- democratic uh, campaigns. And I think uh, it's gotten to a point where, um, young workers are looking around and are like, we need to be practicing what we preach, uh, and form a union, um, for that reason. And also to, um, to have decent pay and hours and benefits. Similar demographic organizations like journalism and even, um, art museum workers have stepped up organizing. Um, but even with all of that, it seems like you all have been on a really hot streak lately. We're really growing. Um, I think we've had um, 18 new units join us in 2020. Um, We have, I think, tripled or almost tripled our number of units that we represent in um, a little over a year. Um, I think, you know, I think 
there are a few factors, but um, I think younger workers, millennials and Gen Zers have been through the ringer economically. I mean, you know, speaking for myself, I'm a millennial who graduated into the Great Recession with a ton of student debt. Um, you know, my friends all had uncertain access to health insurance and, you know, skyrocketing rents. Um, and we want to, you know, work at these mission driven organizations because we don't want to sell out and we, we you know, we want to actually create change. Um, but, you know, as we know, nonprofits are notorious for overworking people, for paying low wages, um, for you know not having great management structures or having great paths for um, for promotion within the organization. And so I think you know younger workers in particular are realizing, well, you know this is not sustainable. Like I can't continue to work at a nonprofit and pay my student loans and, you know, pay rent and, you know, something needs to give here. And so I think they're realizing that coming together and organizing and forming a union is really a way to create a sustainable workplace environment so that they can continue to support the mission of the organization. And that also, you know, they can really improve the organization and make it a place where everyone can thrive who works there. And I, just to add to that, I think um, our union is a place where we've been really able to adapt to the new environment with the pandemic where everyone's working from home um, with such a, you know, a, a young base of, of uh, workers at nonprofits. Um, we know how to, you know, get on on Zoom or get on some kind of chat or video chat platform. And also with um, not having to go into the office we have a lot more time for meetings in the evenings to, um, to organize folks. I mean, there is the challenge of not being able to talk to someone at, you know, the water cooler as, uh, and do the one-on-ones in that way. But we've really been, um, at the forefront of adapting, um, to organizing in this, uh, new environment. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think, um, when you don't have the water cooler, it's one thing, but on the other hand, um, there is something that we've, some of us have at least gotten used to about, I mean, I don't know. I haven't had an office since 2011. So like I just working from home was not weird for me anyway, but. Yeah. I mean, I think um, as we're seeing the workforce change and, and especially post pandemic, I mean, a lot of our members might potentially not have an office that they all go to, um, you know, if, they bargain over it with management and decide that that's what they want. Um, but I think having a say in what that's going to look like, what the working conditions are like, um, and and being able to actually bargain over it is key to particularly coming back post coronavirus, so that you know we're not in unsafe conditions in the office, and that management doesn't decide to just you know slap up some plexiglass and call it a day. So, um, yeah, I think having a union is going to be really key for a lot of workers coming back post-pandemic. That was Caleb Leto and Katie Barrows of NPEU, and we'll have more information on the Descent website. School is officially back in session, or maybe not. 
After months of anxiety, political chaos, and frustration among families and staff, school districts across the country are trying to get students back into the classroom, or alternately, setting up online instruction on an unprecedented scale. As you might have noticed from the reports of panicked parents and picketing teachers, neither in-person instruction nor remote instruction can be deemed a roaring success so far. Meanwhile, college campuses are grappling with the hazards of bringing students onto campus amid the pandemic and managing the inevitable coronavirus outbreaks. The clashes between educators and administrators over how and when to resume in-person learning highlight not only the power dynamics between labor and management in the education system, but also the deep inequities that put certain students, teachers, and school workers at heightened risk of infection. We're going to bring you three voices from the front lines of the school reopening debate. First, we'll hear from GEO, the University of Michigan's Graduate Student Employees Union, about the strike that they launched last week. Aaron Markiewicz, vice president of GEO, talked about the union's campaign to demand a safe and just return to campus. We spoke with Aaron shortly before GEO announced that the strike would end late Wednesday, September 16th. They agreed to a deal with the administration that included significant concessions and, quote, incremental but real movement on our policing demands, unquote. The union stated, By withholding our labor, building coalitions, and making our power impossible to ignore, we force the university to give us an offer with substantive progress toward a safe and just campus. And here's Aaron talking about the reasons they decided to go on strike. The story of the strike starts in April, when GEO began seeking meetings with the administration to discuss concerns we had regarding their response to COVID-19. Over the course of the summer, we met with or tried to meet with deans and other high-level high-level administrators at U of M to sort of discuss our concerns. In particular, these concerns sort of centered on um, our employment, as well as our academic standing as graduate students at the university. So this first came into the public eye with the COVID caucus open letter that had 1,800 signatures on it. Um, now, it's important to note that the way GEO approached this was to construct a caucus, which for GEO means that we created a body separate from our standing committees to handle the escalation and outreach process of this COVID campaign. Over time, the university began dragging their feet and did not show meaningful progress on our demands that were first articulated in the COVID caucus letter. We entered impact bargaining with the university towards the start of August to try and accelerate progress on these demands. But when the semester began, there was no progress and that led the membership to vote to go on strike. So that, so that gets us to the strike vote. Um, so the strike vote passed. And we officially started going on strike on Labor Day. I think people will be interested to know just how short of a turnaround time this was. Um, we ended up signing up around 800 people for picket shifts in two days. 
and we're able to figure out new processes for scheduling pickets and allocating folks across shifts so that we were ready to shut down construction sites starting on Tuesday. And so has most of the action been concentrated, I guess, at what the, is it Ann Arbor? That's the biggest campus or? Yes. So Ann Arbor has been the hub of action for us. We had pickets at North Campus and Central Campus, which are the two sort of sub-campuses of the Ann Arbor campus. And we also had actions that went into Ann Arbor because we felt that if COVID doesn't stay on campus, why should we? So how much of... uh... How much of the issues that uh, your strike is centered around, um, uh, how much is directly related to the pandemic and how much of it reflects sort of longstanding uh, grievances that have been accumulating uh, among graduate workers? That's interesting. I think important background is that this strike has been called an abolitionist strike due to our focus on anti-policing demands such as defunding campus police, cutting ties between the university and Ann Arbor police, as well as ICE. And what we believe as a union is that these longstanding grievances we have with the university have been intensified and even further revealed to be significant issues by the COVID-19 pandemic. So, for instance, the university's response to COVID-19 was not creating an adequate testing infrastructure or contact tracing infrastructure, but to increase the policing on campus through the Michigan Ambassadors Program, which pays undergraduates to police other undergraduates with the help of campus security. Um, Are there particular incidents or, you know, clashes with security personnel that have triggered these actions? You don't need to really look hard for examples or incidents of BIPOC students being harassed by DPSS or, you know, showing up to the gym or spending a late night at the library. But I think there's a very instructive example or story I want to tell here, which is in 2014, AAPD police officers shot and killed Aura Rosser in her home. Over the last six years, the murderer was promoted and the chief who oversaw the incident, oversaw that murder, is now in charge of security forces at the University of Michigan and is in charge of the enforcement of COVID policies through that policing wing. So I think that story is very instructive because it shows how the policing apparatus in Ann Arbor is entwined with the University of Michigan's COVID-19 response. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that there there would still be a strike if it were not for the crisis induced by COVID-19? Or do you feel like the pandemic has really brought to the fore a lot of these underlying tensions? I think the strike would not have happened without COVID-19. That said, there's some backstory I think I need to provide. We were bargaining for a new contract last academic year. And due to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, which significantly demobilized our membership, we were unable to escalate at the, be- at the end of that contract campaign and were not able to build up enough of a mobilization to go on strike. So perhaps we would have gone on strike over our public good planks in our contract, which included housing justice, climate justice, and racial justice. Um, So that strike may have occurred. So we perhaps would have gone on strike in the spring if it were not for COVID-19. But I do not think we would have gone on strike in the fall, if not for COVID-19. It seems like many of your members are on campus right now. Perhaps all of them is one of your demands that, uh, <laughs> that you know, in-person instruction be canceled and the, the campus be, be shut down or? Yeah. One of our demands is that we want the universal right to opt out of in-person instruction. We're not demanding that the university cease all in-person instruction because we do have members who would prefer to teach in person. We just want to give them the ability to make choices for themselves around which situations they feel comfortable engaging with on campus. For instance, on Tuesday, the Department of Dance announced that they would be shutting down the dance building for two weeks because 10% of the department was in quarantine following exposure or a positive test result, and the administration expects that number to increase. At the time of the decision, the only information that the department had came from self-reporting of students and instructors. The Department of the Environment Health and Safety, the department responsible for contact tracing at the University of Michigan, had not reached out to the department with any notification of the outbreak. Clearly, there is not sufficient contact tracing at the University of Michigan. And let's say we have a worker who works very close to the Department of Dance and is now concerned that they were exposed. Shouldn't they have the right to call off classes in person for the next week so that they can get tested so they do not feel like they are possibly exposing their students to this very serious illness. I think that a universal right to teach remotely is sort of pretty immediate given the lack of public health support on campus. In the long term, um, what do you think this says about what's going on in higher education right now. There's been a lot of discussion about how 
the American university system is kind of facing a reckoning um, amid this pandemic and how sort of the, the business model of, of uh, higher education in general is facing a dilemma right now. How do you see your union's actions folding into that broader debate? That's a great question. I think I want to answer it in two ways. So I think there's this larger business model question that we tend to think about when we discuss the structure of the university and how it operates in American society. And the first thing people tend to comment on tends to be that education is viewed as consumption, it's viewed as a commodity, and we see that now that the university has decided to bring back football during a pandemic. And this decision further underlines the fact that the University of Michigan views itself as a luxury brand. It views itself as being able to charge very high tuition rates that are largely unaffordable to many students and their families because they have this brand. And that brand is a function of services that are sometimes put in higher priority than education. And I think it challenges the business model, this pandemic, because it, one, it caused a steep decrease in demand. It destroyed a lot of wealth. It led to high unemployment, which meant that higher education is not affordable for even more people in this country. Um, I think it's challenging that business model at, because it's challenging the belief that you can treat the university as providing a service instead of constructing a community or constructing a space for a community to form, right? Like there's, there's a responsibility of the, un, of the university to provide a safe and just community, not only for its students, but the community members in the surrounding area. And what we're seeing here is that the business decisions of the university affect other people besides the students and parents that are typically viewed as the only members of this market transaction. There's another point I want to bring up too, which is, I think, very important, at least for how GEO views the pushback from the University of Michigan against our demands, which is that universities, in an attempt to diminish the accountability of upper management, have taken on a very decentralized management style. This allows for gender-based violence and racial injustice to persist across campus without higher-level administrators having to do anything of consequence and can get by by just having conversation after conversation after conversation. A lot of GEO demands are asking for unilateral support unconditional support, no means testing, that the university has been really 
reluctant to take on. And we feel that in order to create a university that is inclusive and stands up for its students and workers, we need to be able to have centralized policies that can support vulnerable communities on campus and the surrounding areas. I think an instructive example is at the University of Michigan, we had a pretty serious case of sexual harassment by a upper-level administrator, Martin Philbert, who sexually harassed students and colleagues over the course of 20 years. And due to the decentralization of the university, he was never held to account until last year after being promoted to, I believe, provost. So I, I think COVID-19 is not only challenging this belief of the university as a commodity, but also challenging this belief that the university can operate as this decentralized corporation with limited accountability at the top. That was Aaron Markiewicz, vice president of GEO. And now we will hear from Andrew Sparr, president of the Florida Education Association. His union has also been locked in a court battle over school reopening. But in this case, it's the teachers union that sued the state, arguing that the state's education commissioner had needlessly put public health and safety at risk by ordering all schools across the state to reopen for full-time in-person learning or else risk losing funding. The court recently ruled in favor of the union. The judge stated that Governor Ron DeSantis and the education commissioner had, quote, essentially ignored the requirement of school safety by requiring the statewide reopening of brick-and-mortar schools to receive already allocated funding, unquote. However, the court victory will basically have little material effect on the immediate circumstances of teachers and students because most school districts have by now already reopened. Meanwhile, the case has been appealed by the DeSantis administration. At the same time, teachers are constrained in terms of taking direct action as it is illegal for them to strike under state law as it is here in New York. Here's Andrew Sparr explaining what teachers plan to do next. So um, in Florida, what we saw was a governor and commissioner of education put aside student safety and the safety of the people who work in our schools. And they just issued an edict that all school districts in the state of Florida will open brick and mortar uh, buildings or they will lose funding. And so districts did not have a choice. They had to move forward with the reopening of schools because they couldn't afford to lose funding in a state that already dramatically underfunds uh, our public schools. Uh, and so we saw that as a great concern because the Florida Constitution guarantees every student in the state a safe, high quality, free public education. And so when they ignore the safety aspect of it, uh, we felt we had to uh, step up and take on this challenge. We did not waste a lot of time. We put together an incredible legal team uh, who told us early on that the odds of winning this lawsuit were probably 50-50. Uh, it actually ended up uh, being assigned to five different judges before it really got going. And this uh, fifth judge, we were told early on, was pretty straight and narrow, and we probably had a less than 50% chance of prevailing. But in the end, this circuit judge uh, agreed with us and said that uh, in his ruling, the governor and the commissioner did not account for the safety of students uh, or the people who work in our schools. Uh, the fact that they didn't consider safety for students violated the Florida Constitution. 
uh, and he ruled overwhelmingly in our favor, which was not to say that schools should not reopen. It was just to say that you cannot mandate schools reopen, tie a penalty uh, in the terms of funding to it without considering the conditions uh, in each of the communities. And so, uh, you know, we prevail there. Of course, the state has appealed. It's at the appellate level right now, and we're expecting a ruling uh, any day from the appellate level. So how does that directly affect schools right now? Uh, have schools that were, first of all, were, had schools, had some schools opened already? And like with the appeal, uh, isn't there a stay on the preliminary injunction? There is. Yeah. So, so the, the state immediately appealed and under Florida law, when the state is the defendant and, or, or plaintiff, I guess, and they lose, they automatically get a stay. We filed paperwork to get that automatic stay uh, re- repealed. Uh, the judge agreed with us. It was uh, interesting because the state has been arguing that this lawsuit is about closing schools uh, and it's about funding. And it's not. It, it's really not. It's about protecting our public schools, protecting the students and the people who work there. There's nothing in our lawsuit that says schools must close. There is nothing in our lawsuit that says the state must give them extra money. It just says the state shouldn't um, essentially blackmail school districts by saying, if you don't do it the way we want you to do it, when we want you to do it, you will lose funding. And when this first got heard by the circuit judge, school a few school districts were getting ready to open and uh, have since opened. Uh, all school districts in the state of Florida have opened except for three. Um, Palm Beach will open on Monday, and then Broward and Miami-Dade will open a, a couple of weeks after that. Um, so, uh, so most school districts in Florida have opened. They have opened with brick and mortar, uh, teaching. Um, and then they also have an online component and a live, if you will, they call it a live component where teachers are, are teaching live to students over the internet. Um, so, so they have multiple components going up. But what we've seen so far is an increase in the number of kids being diagnosed with COVID. Uh, we've seen a lot of teachers and staff diagnosed with COVID. So we've had schools that have had to close for 14 days uh, because of the number of cases of coronavirus in their school. Uh, we've seen classrooms shut down. We've seen um, uh, bus routes shut down because of it. But, but I'll just add this. We continue to see the heavy-handed approach and the threatening and bullying tactics of the governor and the Department of Education, and we see it also through the Department of Health. The Department of Health has mandated and asked, rather, every uh, teacher to give them a seating chart of the kids in their class. And if someone in the class is diagnosed with COVID, the Department of Health is deciding based on that seating chart, which, mind you, is a piece of paper that has kids' names written on it, who should be quarantined. So it doesn't say how far apart the kids are. It doesn't talk about how kids interact during the day. Uh, but they're making this decision. The, the, the governor called it they're being surgical in how they approach the quarantining of students and adults uh, in our schools. So a lot of anxiety, a lot of angst among teachers and parents and a lack of transparency from school districts, from the governor, uh, from the Department of Education and from the Department of Health as we're dealing with this pandemic. Okay, so it seems like, in effect, despite the court ruling, um, the governor's plans are, in many cases, largely being implemented 
um, in practice? Are the schools just reopening with in-person learning pretty much across the board? Yes. Um, so they are. It is continuing because obviously they have the stay as they appeal it. Um, but what uh, what we see is that the um, what, what, what we're really seeing in all of this is that we are seeing so many challenges in our schools with the reopening. Um, we are seeing teachers and staff literally retiring early, walking away from the profession and quitting or taking a leave of absence. Uh, in fact, retirements are about double what they are in the districts where we've seen it so far, about double what they typically are uh, at this point in the school year. Resignations are also two to three times greater than what they typically are at this point in the school year in, in the districts where we've seen these numbers. And leave of absences for the school year um, are up, in some cases, five times over what they typically would be uh, at this point in the year. So we're seeing uh, ramifications of this decision. But yes, the brick and mortar schools in every district are open. It varies how many kids are attending in person. Uh, it varies from some districts where, uh, quite honestly, they, they, they're, they're not believing that COVID is a real issue uh, to other places where parents don't have an option. They have to go to work. And so they're sending their kids to school. So we're seeing Numbers in some districts where about 30 percent of the students are showing up in person and in other districts, as many as 80 percent. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, I mean, <laughs> would it be fair to say that the outcome of the lawsuit is ultimately not going to be, um, you know, stopping <laughs> stopping a plan that's putting a lot of students at risk in this way? And I guess um, given the limitations of the courts um, in terms of the intervention that you're seeking, um, what are the next steps for the union to try to protect uh, to, to try to protect both students and educators uh, in you know to the greatest extent possible? Yeah, so this was never just about the court case. It, it can never be just about a court case, right? There's got to be a lot more attached to it. And, and I was remiss because I didn't really say that uh, the appeals court put the stay back in place. Uh, and in doing so, kind of signal that they're going to most likely rule against us. Uh, and, and they're going to do so. We can't lose sight of the fact that the appellate court are, are judges who are appointed by governors. And so Governor DeSantis, Governor Rick Scott before him have appointed a lot of these appellate court judges. Um, and so while we hope politics never plays a role in this, we know that two judges in the appellate court division and the one who wrote uh, the the reinstatement of the stay uh, was in line uh, for a possible Supreme Court, Florida Supreme Court appointment appointment uh, that the governor was making. And uh, there was actually a court battle here with the Supreme Court and the governor over over these appointments. So it, it's it's very complicated, obviously. Uh, but the reality of it is we can't just rely on the courts. And so uh, what we've continued to do is talk with parents and talk to community. You know, the school districts and the school boards, superintendents, they have an obligation. They have a constitutional obligation. They have a moral and ethical obligation to make sure they're protecting kids and the people who work in our schools. And we are going to continue to fight uh, at the local level with the governor, with the commissioner, with anyone to make sure that students and the people who work in our schools are safe. I have two daughters uh, in the public school system. And, and here's the bottom line. I want to know that if they're going to school, they are safe, that their health is being accounted for, that school districts are doing everything possible 
not everything they can afford to do, but literally everything possible, which means they need the resources, they need the support, they need to make sure that that they're transparent. Uh, and what we've had is another issue, like I said, is this lack of transparency, where we don't even know in some cases how many how many kids in a classroom have been diagnosed with COVID. They're not releasing that uh, in all cases. We've been fighting and it's getting a little bit better, but the governor literally suppressed that. The state released a report that talked about COVID cases, the number of cases, which schools those COVID cases were in, so parents could make an informed decision. And the governor pulled it down and said he would not allow that information to be released. Um, and, and then school districts were releasing information and the governor and the Department of Health came in and told them to stop releasing it. Uh, but because of political pressure that we have brought as a union, as educators, um, with parents all around the state, school districts have started releasing information again, but they're not doing it in the most transparent way. And as a parent, I want to know what's happening. If there is a kid in my child's class with COVID, I want to know that. If there are multiple kids in my child's class with COVID, I really want to know that. If there's a bunch of COVID cases in the school that my child attends, I want to know that so that I can make decisions about my child's health and my family's health. And how dare uh, school districts, the governor, the commissioner of education or the Department of Health prevent me from having that information? Uh, when, when we heard about the coronavirus at the beginning, what did we hear? We heard testing and contact tracing is vitally important. And yet you have a governor's administration who is working to undermine the ability for that to happen uh, and playing roulette with our kids' lives. And that's just uh, unconscionable in, in my mind. So what would you tell a teacher right now who is in a district that is rushing to reopen schools um, for in-person learning and they feel frightened and ill-prepared and um, just generally uh, really concerned that um, you know they, they won't be able to do their job safely. Um, I mean, would you, would you support something like a sick out? I actually don't know if it's legal in Florida for teachers to strike. It is, it is not legal in Florida. And if we, uh, if we supported something like that, put aside the penalties for the union, because that's not important to me, but, but teachers would lose their retirement. And, um, I, you know, which is one reason you don't see that really happening in Florida and you won't. The penalties are just extremely high. Um, and and so what what I would say to someone and, and what we have quite honestly said to a lot of our members is that we have to keep fighting. We have to keep uh, raising awareness. We have to keep telling our story. We have to get the parents and the community engaged uh, and we have to vote. On November 3rd or before if you vote by mail or early. Um, but we, we have to do that. We have to pay attention to people who are willing to stand up with educators, stand so, shoulder to shoulder with educators, support educators. We have to elect those people. We can't keep electing the kind of people who are going to create chaos and, and, and try to tear down our public system of education um, if we keep doing that, we're going to keep getting what we've always gotten. And, you know, we always say that the election is the most important election we've ever seen in our lifetimes. And, and it kind of always is, I guess, in a lot of respects. But um, 
if we if we really think about what's happening and and we really understand that the position we're in right now is a direct result of who is in office, then we should vote uh, accordingly and um, and know that as a union, we have our members backs. Uh, we are going to never give up. We are going to fight forward. We are going to use uh, every um, everything that we have within our control to to push back and to fight and to stand up because it's not just about the health and safety of our students and people who work in our schools. It's about the quality of education uh, our kids are receiving. And when teachers are walking away, they're not walking away because they don't care. They're walking away because they care so much. They will not participate in the destruction of public education and the undermining of the future of our country and our students. That was Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association. And finally, I spoke with Annie Tan, a member of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators. Tan is a special education teacher who has been struggling to prepare for New York City's school reopening plan, which is set to launch next Monday, at least for now. As we reported earlier, the de Blasio administration had actually pushed back the original planned first day of school after the United Federation of Teachers threatened to take a strike vote. Well, that vote never happened, and the teachers got a last-minute half-baked compromise and a later date for the reopening. Now, rank-and-file teachers like Tan are frustrated and nervous about how they will handle their pandemic classrooms. He has Annie Tan, special education teacher and member of the Moore Caucus. My staff and I have been preparing to go fully remote because none of us think this will work at all. Um, and we're actually taking bets on what day it'll finally, finally go fully remote. We're, you know, putting assignments up on our Google Classroom um, and figuring out together, like, how to plan the first few weeks of learning. But, you know, uh, I don't know one staff member who thinks this is going to work at all. But it's also really hard because our mayor is all steam ahead um, and not listening to educators and uh, even, like, principals, custodial workers, nurses, um, parents, all these people who are saying that this isn't going to work. Um, and my, uh, you know, we're trying to report building issues, um, operational issues around like uh, teachers who are being made to work with students in the classroom while also working with remote students, which has been happening in places like Florida where teachers have to teach in person and live stream their lessons to remote learners uh, at the same time and then be responsible for both the re remote grading and then the blended grading. So it's very complicated um, and a ton of work uh, to do both in-person and remote teaching the same day. Um, we're lucky that my union has negotiated that we're not allowed to do both unless it's part-time one, part-time the other. But um, at the same time, it's also not possible to do that uh, without additional staff members so we're just trying to rack our brains around how logistically this is going to work while also trying to fight against uh, unsafe conditions in the school building. Um, for example, I still haven't received one face mask at school yet because my school only has 175 adult masks, um, which would last two days for staff members. And we've been in the school building now seven days. Um, so it's, 
absolutely ridiculous that we don't have the resources we need, the supplies we need. We don't have contact testing or tracing in place um, in order to catch cases right now. We know that uh, 55 staff members have gotten COVID-19 um, and been at the school site um, and have possibly exposed other staff members in the building uh, to COVID-19. Uh, and a lot of those staff members haven't been contacted by contact tracers uh, until maybe four or five days after exposure. I mean, that's not a ton of um, people getting tested all together, which is a good thing. But to have put all those people, not, uh, not all of them were in the school building, of course, but uh, to put a good number of those people into school buildings when our remote training and work could have been done remotely, and we might not have put those people in danger in the first place, that's the most alarming part of all, that they don't trust teachers to do this work remotely. We'll have staff meetings, and we'll do them over Zoom in our classroom, and the principals had to tell us to turn our cameras off because our school Wi-Fi can't handle the bandwidth. So I thought that under the model that the DOE came up with, um, it was going to be a hybrid model anyway. Yeah. Uh, so even in the best case scenario, even if you could teach in person, you'd still have to be devoting a big chunk of your time to teaching students online, right? Correct. So the way that uh, the DOE and the UFT negotiated it, my union and my bosses at the DOE, that is, those people, those staff members teaching in person will not be teaching those remotely. So like the remote learners will have a, another separate teacher. And this would work if like, you know, 50% of staff members were remote and 50% of staff are in person and like the kids are that way too. And then you could just shuffle in kids. But what also needs to be in compliance are rights for English learners, for instance. They must have like an ENL provider. So like the students with English learner needs like need a special teacher. The students with special education teachers need those special special education conditions like um i have to uh what's called like some students uh need two teachers in an integrated co-teaching model um so it's not as easy as just shuffling oh who's going remote who's going in person some classes will need three teachers or four teachers in order to be able to teach that class and we just don't have that fast you know there's estimates saying that we would need 10 to 15,000 more teachers in order to comply with the agreement that is impossible that the DOE and my union made. Um, you know, we've always been short special education teachers. And as a special education teacher, I know this very well. In my school alone, we're going to need 18 more teachers to make this work. Um, and so because of that, some teachers, including myself, are wondering, like, am I just going to end up teaching both in person and remote? Um, which is going to be a 12-hour day easily um, because I'm going to have to check both uh, settings, um, and it's it's going to be really impossible to do, and uh, I, I don't know how we're going to do it, frankly. It seems like the DOE came up with its plan under pressure over the summer in a relatively short period of time. Um, were teachers consulted in the creation of that plan um and were there um instances you know over the summer where people were you know raising concerns and giving suggestions and how to make it better or well yes 
many teachers have been speaking out over the summer, including myself, um, around all the things like the infrastructure needs that needs to be fixed around the ventilation. Um, and it wasn't until like a week or two ago that finally the DOE went and checked all 1400 schools supposedly for ventilation issues. Um, and also like we found out Monday night, the night before staff were supposed to report that 57% of school bathrooms are not operable right now because of ventilation issues. Um, so it's, it's just like, where were you on this planning? How come you couldn't figure out those issues were a thing in June or July when there was no one in the building? Um, why did you have to wait like less than a day before we were supposed to come in to tell us our bathrooms weren't working? And I still don't know which bathrooms in my school don't work. I know none of them have windows. Um, so, uh, you know, we've been sounding the alarm for months since March, frankly. Um, when teachers had to put it upon themselves to, like, decide whether or not to go to work. Yeah. I mean, what is what is the sense that you get from talking to uh, the parents at your school and, and the students at your school? And I know that, you know, with, with special education, I mean, there are really unique needs that they have that probably can't be fulfilled through online learning alone. So how are you navigating that with, uh, with the parents and students that you work with? So, um, you know, I was, I just finished my first day of remote learning with students today. Um, and one of the parents asked me if uh, they, there were devices available, for instance, because, again, two-thirds of even, like, blended learning is going to be fully remote. Uh, and I didn't have an answer because we don't know, as a school system, where we're getting new devices from for parents whose devices broke or need fixing or whatever. Um, another parent asked me uh, how to even sign up for fully remote, and they've been wanting to know how to sign fully remote, but um, couldn't find it. So I gave her the website. Another parent asked, what is the schedule going to look like? Um, how often are we going to do remote learning? And I had to tell that parent that we don't have a schedule yet because the chancellor gave out guidance at 9 o'clock last night to principals, which changed my schedule. Um, and that none of us have the schedules yet on Wednesday afternoon for when students are supposed to be in school next week. And so have there been adaptations you've need to make for those students um, because they are special needs? So I'm teaching with a mask on in my classroom because we have to wear masks in the school building. Uh, you know, since I have a paraprofessional, like, of course we have to wear a mask. Um, so... My students couldn't see my facial expressions. Uh, they couldn't see that I was joking or smiling or anything like that um, over a mask. So that's going to be both in-person and remote if I have to teach remotely from my classroom, uh, which is very frustrating. I can't really, like, have groups and, like, discussion groups like we normally do in a classroom setting um, especially, but we can't do that in person anyway, because the kids are going to be six feet away. So that we're not going to get to do much group work at all. Um, the kids are all going to be eating lunch inside, um, and facing forward in the classroom. And they're going to have an instructional lunch, meaning that they're not going to get recess and that they're going to be in the same classroom the whole damn day for five hours. I'm going to sit in the back of the room while supervising them as they eat their lunch. 
And I'm just thinking in terms of like instruction, like I can't, I can't really like sit next to them and check their work immediately. You know, they're going to have to like do all their work on a computer probably because, you know, I've heard of, uh, you know, I haven't gotten any guidance yet on whether we can use the books in our classroom. So they're going to be sitting in the classroom with their devices and I'm going to be sitting at least six feet away from them, uh, checking their work on the computer and making sure they did it. Um, and it's not going to be really like teaching them how to handwrite or like um, doing super many art things like with markers and things like I'll probably do some of those things, but I haven't really figured out how yet um, to teach from six feet away. I, I know that there are other teachers across the nation that have done that. And, you know, some teachers saying like mask compliance has been pretty good at their schools. So I don't know, Michelle, I don't know. There's so many things happening. How old are your kids? Uh, my students are fourth and fifth graders this year. How do you think right. the UFT has, has behaved throughout this ordeal? And, um, you know, are you as, as a union member, um, you know, what do you think, the role of the union should be in all this. The union should have protected us all along and stopped this unsafe plan. We've known for months that this is unsafe and unsound logistically and unfunded. Um, And my union should have been standing up all along and saying, this is not workable. Instead, they had a very like third hearted. I, I I was going to say half hearted, but it, it wouldn't be half. It would be like a third, like a third hearted strike threat. Um, saying that, oh, if we don't get mandatory testing for teachers and students, if we don't have a PPE, and if we don't have uh, the building inspections reports and ventilation in all places, then we're not going to open. And guess what? All of those things are issues right now, and none of those things have been resolved. So, for example, something on the 50-point checklist is, does your school have a nurse? Um, the three answers are yes, no, or unsure. But what do I say to the fact that we have a part-time nurse? But like during a global pandemic where kids may or may not be coming in with symptoms of COVID-19, we should have a nurse in every school. And it took a pandemic for the mayor to say that we would have a nurse in every school. And yet we still don't have a nurse in every school because he tried to hire him last minute at like the tail end of August. Um, so does that mean my school won't open on Monday? It's not clear. You know, is the plexiglass installed in the office? Yes, there is plexiglass in the office, but three foot plexiglass um, in like a 10, 11 foot office is hygiene theater. This is all a show, like to say we can spray electrostatic cleaners and just give you white um, we know this is an airborne virus. What do you fear will be the long-term impact the longer this drags on? In my little classroom last year, I had 12 students and three paraprofessional assistants and myself. We had 14 deaths of family and friends among our little classroom. Um, and I know my students have gotten over the loss of their grandparents, their cousins, their uncles. Um, it's just it's so much, you know, my students and all of us have gone through a lot of trauma. So I think just first and foremost, like the fact that people died and people 
have not been safe in this society. Like, you know, it, it, it gets people very, very scared and worried about um, the social safety net that does not exist um, in terms of health care uh, for immigrants. You know, I work in Sunset Park and there were even ice raids happening like just a few weeks ago here. Um, and, you know, with education, like all of these things depended, all, have always depended on how much you have. Like if you have devices at home, if you have internet. Um, and the students, unfortunately, who did not have internet at the start of this and who went to Spectrum to get like a free 60-day trial and who still don't have internet today, um, they're going to fall behind. You know, students without devices are going to fall behind. Parents can't work under this plan unless they uh, take leaves or have the Child Care, uh, Family First Child Care Relief Act. Um, so it's always been a haves and haves not situation in the first place. Um, and our students are going to fall behind. We know this um, because I can't show them the same love and care that I would in a classroom. You know, and, you know, I was talking with another paraprofessional about this the other day, um, and she shared that, like, all ex-student needed was some love and to know they were cared for and they, that they belonged. And that's going to be much harder to do in a remote learning setting because I think so much of my work um, as a teacher is that socialization piece. And all of us want to be back in person for sure, but I'm also not putting my students through that risk again that they're going to lose family members. Um, it's, it's just not happening. Um, so everyone, every single person has been affected by this pandemic. I hope, you know, I've been hoping that I would be wrong about all of this. Um, the viruses, like it's spreading um, in the classroom. And I could be wrong if we go back in person on Monday. Maybe I will be. And then I'll come on to your podcast and say I was wrong. I've been speaking to reporters for five months and I was wrong. Uh, and I hope so. But given everything I told you, like, no, I, I think we've been proven right. Um, it's, it's really unfortunate and I'm really, really frustrated at all of it. Yeah. What are the more caucuses plans right now in terms of what you're demanding and some of your ongoing efforts to influence the union in terms of how it moves forward from here? We've been the caucus of rank and file educators that uh, within our teachers union that uh, has been trying to call out the UFT and the mayor uh, on their bull, you know, that uh, up till yesterday, the Department of Education wasn't reporting where cases were coming from of those 55 staff members. And uh, they finally released that information yesterday alongside that chancellor's guidance. Uh, there's a lot around uh, just getting out to the press that there are schools uh, that are using air purifiers uh, to offset the ventilation issues and that they're using PTA money to do that. There's ridiculous guidance on outdoor learning and the chancellor asking richer PTAs uh, to fund lower-income communities. And so our caucus has been really important in sharing teachers' input 
in a union where teachers input is not valued otherwise that agreement to avert the strike would never have happened um i know that uh there's been a push uh you know from educators to like not go into school buildings and uh there's one school the high school of economics and finance where uh they were threatened by administrators to uh dock their pay if they didn't go back inside but largely like none of the schools that have been picketing have gotten repercussions at this moment uh so that's good you know when they were talking about the strike uh the Moore caucus had a thousand person member meeting uh on a zoom call which is the largest rank and file meeting of the uft since the uft's founding in 1960. Uh, so there is definitely potential to shift the ways that our union's working and to shift how rank and file feel power and agency um and voice right now uh we just have to take it you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org That was Annie Tan of the Moore Caucus within the United Federation of Teachers, New York. We will have more links about educators and their organizing up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. The good folks at StrikeWave have been doing really great work lately, including some original data reporting on OSHA complaints. OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, collects and provides information on complaints filed by workers about safety concerns in the workplace. And naturally, that data is incredibly important when considering working in a global pandemic. So this piece by Kevin Runing, titled OSHA Complaints Show Workplace Safety is Still a Concern as the Economy Reopens gives us a snapshot of working conditions across the country. Of course, as Bruning notes, this is limited. Quote, the information has some limitations. OSHA only provides information on where the complaint originated from after a case is closed. OSHA typically exercises jurisdiction over private sector employers, leaving the public sector, such as public education, out of the picture. Importantly, these are complaints primarily made by employees. Not all employees are aware of their rights at work, know how to make complaints, or feel empowered to make them. Finally, complaints do not necessarily lead to enforcement. OSHA has been widely criticized for failing to issue citations and enforce workplace health and safety standards during the pandemic. End quote. There's a lot of interesting data, nevertheless. Bruning notes, quote, one clear trend is a change in the type of complaints filed over time. The first plot below, you can go to our website to find the link and the charts, shows the daily number of complaints in some of the more prominent sectors of the economy. Changes reflect trends in how COVID-19 has impacted workplace health and safety and the economy. Complaints to OSHA peaked early on in many sectors, such as healthcare and manufacturing, end quote. Others, like retail, perhaps not surprisingly, hit multiple peaks. Quote, retail trade hit its first peak with 96 complaints on March 26th, but doubled that the Monday after the July 4th weekend with 183 complaints. In other words, apparently, reopening sparked more concerns. 
It's worth noting, as we've discussed it on Belabored recently, that the Postal Service is at the top of the list of complaints. Bruning writes, quote, USPS employees alone have made 324 COVID-related complaints, dramatically exceeding the next closest employer, the United Parcel Service. Many of the complaints describe decaying infrastructure, rat-infested sorting facilities, and other evidence of long-term neglect in addition to concerns specifically related to COVID-19. This is particularly relevant given widespread concerns regarding postal delays and the election and reflects long-term financial difficulties in USPS due to flawed policy and federal mismanagement. Of course, he also notes that USPS and UPS also have strong employee unions, workers are likely better educated regarding their rights, and union representatives are more likely to utilize OSHA to report problems, end quote. What does all this tell us? Not nearly enough. But Runing notes, quote, a number of conclusions can be reached. OSHA complaints during the pandemic are a function of employer policy, worker organization, understanding of their rights, the role that sector plays in overall economic activity right now, the feasibility of adequate health and safety policies, and employer willingness to implement them. These are complicated times, and there are few simple stories, end quote. He also notes, depressingly, quote, the reopenings have put some of the most precarious workers, such as in the hospitality sector, at risk, buying normalcy and economic activity at workers' expense. My pick for ARG is Nick Martin's piece in The New Republic called The New York Times Discovers a Manhattan Makeover for New Tenant Farming. I've been somewhat fascinated with the spectacle of the urban homesteader, the young professional who decides to retreat from the hustle and bustle of the daily grind and go find themselves in a bucolic rural enclave away from the big city. Martin peels back the layers of hype surrounding the off-grid lifestyle craze that doe-eyed urban professionals have embraced as nouveau farmers. The piece is a reaction to the New York Times lifestyle story about a young couple, Eugene Kwok and Claire Coe, who decide to throw caution to the wind and try their hand at living in a charming ultramodern modern farmhouse in the Hudson Valley, while contracting out the farmland for others to work. Kwok and Co. had no direct experience with full-fledged farming, but they were, shall we say, farmer-adjacent. Kwok had volunteered at local farming centers, and Co. had worked for a fancy cheese company. Through a local farmer-tenant matchmaking service, they found a nice couple willing to take on the work for them, in exchange for a place to live. They believed this partnership would allow them to enjoy living on a real working farm without actually farming. They coined their project To Gather, T-O-G-A-T-H-E-R. Despite the hip name, Martin explains that their business model is a system as old as the hills. He writes, quote, The correct term for what the Manhattan couple invented is tenant farming. It's a practice that has been around for centuries. In America, tenant farming is inextricably tied to the Jim Crow South, where it was the most direct way for wealthy white landowners to continue blocking the social mobility of formerly enslaved black workers, along with other non-white and poor people. Parentheses, my grandfather and great-grandfather, both Saponi men, worked as tenant farmers. It was not until the 1930s that my grandfather, James Coleman, became one of the first tribal members to actually own and operate a Saponi farm, unquote. Martin acknowledges that he's not the first reader to be critical of this young couple's carefree approach to modern-day sharecropping. They caused quite a stir on social media, but he puts the tenant farming phenomenon in a broader context. He writes, quote, This couple, probably with honestly good intentions, is now magnanimously allowing a pair of workers to pay them $12,000 in annual rent while also spending their life savings to repair land that they don't own. The black marble countertops in the bespoke farmhouse are just the highly stylized trappings of a larger trend, 
a salt-the-earth approach to labor that increasingly forces workers to shoulder all the risks and burdens for an ownership class that's sitting back and cleaning up, unquote. Yet Martin emphasizes that the enterprising young couple don't see themselves as exploitative. They see the farm as their investment. They are the king of their castle, beaming with pride, and they have allotted another couple a piece of land, along with discounted housing, to make their property productive. Their contract laborers, in turn, pay rent for this privilege. So this is a story of urban gentry outsourcing farm labor while enjoying their estate and letting their tenants piggyback on the privilege of their luxurious lifestyle. Martin refers to this phenomenon as new tenant farming. That's N-U as in new metal. It's just a new iteration of multi-tiered agricultural exploitation with a late capitalist twist. He writes, to gather is more akin to the Silicon Valley tendency to shift many of the operational costs and risks onto individual workers as is legally possible, unquote. I mean... I guess tenant farmers were sort of the original gig workers. Martin's analysis of the Times story elucidates the hidden subtext of the narrative of Quack and Quo's entrepreneurship. Here are two couples in a business arrangement, feudal lords and happy serfs who appear to be well-educated, middle-class, and yearning for something more than the nine-to-five. The Times depicts a happy party of four sharing an abode, and they seem to be living up. But this gentrified 21st century fantasy of rural life which might sell well in the style section, seems curiously devoid of labor. The back-breaking, poorly paid, often lethal grunt work that is so degraded, so brutal, that it was explicitly excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act in the 1930s. This new model of farming comes across as an embodiment of self-sufficiency, can-do spirit, and sustainable style. They make the farming life seem so effortless somehow, and detached from history. It's worth noting here that the landlord couple is Asian-American, and one of the tenant farmers is a transplant from London. There's something quite romantic about how these people, modern-day pioneers of the American dream, in a way, have turned to farming to put down roots in this place, and have adopted a lifestyle that is somewhat alien to them, culturally and socially. It's an adventure, or at least that's how it's branded. Martin writes, quote, None of these efforts are particularly smart or clever. It doesn't require an impressive IQ to reach the conclusion that getting people to effectively pay you to work for them will result in you becoming even wealthier than you already are. That just takes seed money and a quick perusing of Wikipedia or YouTube to figure out how slave owners made their nut. The question is whether today's wealthy can stomach an aesthetic reframing of centuries-old abhorrent labor practices in the name of fulfilling their dreams. Apparently, the answer is yes, unquote. The dream of the gentleman farmer is a very traditional framing of the relationship linking the citizen, the land, and the state. It allows us to reconcile the contradictions of agricultural production. Farming is an economy that has been idealized as somehow standing apart from the stresses and corruption of urban life. It is also an economic system that was also historically built on coercion, racial subjugation, and the invisibilization of the laboring class. The Hudson Valley's boutique yuppie homestead displays an alluring lifestyle for Times readers, but it carefully elides the harsh, often painful livelihoods that make the rest of our industrial farming system tick. This couple's lovely hardwood floors are layered on top of centuries of some pretty savage dirt. And that's it for this back-to-school edition of Belabored. Thanks to Natasha and Colin for making us sound good. And we would love it if you could spare some change to support our journalism. You can go to dissentmagazine.org and find ways to become a sustaining member of this podcast. You can also go to our shiny new Patreon page and make a recurring monthly donation. And you'll also get a free gift when you sign up. Let us know if you have any comments, feedback, or story ideas. If you are an educator or a school worker or a working parent, or a working student, and you are anxious, 
frustrated, confused, perhaps even excited about the resumption of school, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, and you can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.